0: I am Victor Milligan
1: and I'm Jennifer Isabella,
0: your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in market influencing executive priorities. And we're joined today by Forrester Vice President and Group Director, Melissa Parrish, to discuss how marketers have accidentally eroded consumer trust and what they can do to reverse that trend. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So before we delve into the specific issues of trust, uh, we just came out of our consumer marketing forum. Um, Could we just touch on a couple of things that some of the big ideas that came from that forum?
2: Definitely. I think the biggest thing that came from that forum was that there's this uh, there's this pendulum swing that we expect uh, in marketing that is uh, happening again because of direct to consumer relationships. And it really needs to stop. What I mean is You know, Things get trendy, things get buzzy, like direct-to-consumer, DTC, digitally native brands. Um, Oh my gosh, throw out everything you've ever known about marketing because all you need is a good uh, stable of influencers and that can be your whole new marketing plan. Or on the other side, you've got traditional brands saying, well, sure, that works for the new guys, but it would never work for me, so I'm not going to change anything at all. I'm just going to keep doing what I've always been doing. And what we found at Consumer Marketing was that Neither of those things is true uh, or useful or successful. It's actually something in the middle, which is that you have to start by understanding what is behind the trend. And that means from the consumer point of view. So why have consumers cared about direct-to-consumer, digitally native challenger brands? What is it about this new style of business that they are liking? Why are they turning to these brands in what seems like market-changing numbers? And then what about those elements of the experience can anybody use to become more successful, whether you are a brand-new brand or a traditional brand or otherwise? So I think what we found... That was the most important thing was that the extreme responses are almost never the right way to go. It's understanding why the thing that seems to be so trendy is trendy and then figuring out what parts of that are most appropriate to what you are trying to do for your customers.
0: Part of what I just heard you say was that people will start assigning new trendy words to existing habits and defend inaction by saying, no, no, I'm really doing this you know, insert buzzword. And what you're saying is people need to get beyond the buzzwords and the veneer of it and get into what is the underlying dynamic that's forcing the hand that's creating this buzzword.
2: That's exactly right. I think um, when it comes to this uh, challenger brand, direct-to-consumer uh, effort, you <laughs> what happens is you see all of the press and you see the, the numbers being published. And as a traditional brand, you go, consumers love this. I'm customer-obsessed. So therefore, I'm going to do this too. Uh, but are you customer obsessed if you don't understand where the numbers are coming from or why customers care? And then when you dig deeper, you discover that actually it isn't, it isn't anything new at all. We, we did some uh, bespoke research for, uh, about this topic, and we discovered that consumers still care about convenience, quality, and trust. These are things they have always cared about. They still care about them. But the way they think about them is what has evolved. And so if you just go, well, consumers like uh, being able to subscribe to toilet paper, therefore my toilet paper business has to have a subscription model, you you haven't actually understood what it is that customers care about because it's not the subscription model that matters. It's the convenience that matters. And there are a whole bunch of ways – to improve the convenience of your products and services. It doesn't have to just be subscription.
0: I think what struck me about some of the work that I saw, Melissa, was a paradoxical relationships that exist with customers, meaning customers have a declining level of trust in institutions, and yet are willing to experiment with new brands, which those are, they could be perceived as opposing forces. And so customers aren't clean. They're not simple. Um, there's a a significant level of nuance which disallows easy segmentation, easy personas, and forces the hand of marketers to truly understand them at almost the individual level to understand those nuances.
2: Yeah, we did find a lot of paradoxes in the data, both in terms of the uh, DTC trend, as well as just exploring what customer obsession means today, uh, and you're, you're exactly right. There is, there is nuance that cannot be captured if the only kind of research you're doing is quantitative or worse, automated and quantitative. Uh, it leads you to make these assumptions like, well, everybody wants personalization uh, because personalization is a form of convenience. Therefore, if I amass more data and apply it in order to achieve personalization, I have behaved in a customer-obsessed way. But that actually leaves out very important things like, what is the definition of personalization to your customers in the context of your brand? And what about all of the people who actually don't want that from you or anybody, but more particularly from you and your brand? Do you leave those people by the wayside or do you have a strategy that allows for people to express how they want to interact with you and then actually respects that? And the only way you can really get to that is a combination of quantitative and qualitative data. That's why we think that customer research, actually talking to people, radical as that might sound, uh, is very important, just as important as collecting and aggregating and analyzing quantitative data.
0: I want to return back to that, but I also don't want to bury your lead. The lead said that with great positive intent, marketers are doing things that are causing the opposite effect specifically it relates to trust. Let's stay on that for a second. What did, what did you mean by that? Because that's that's a heck of a comment.
2: Yeah. So uh I'm a brand. I'm going to become customer obsessed. So I'm going to learn everything there possibly is to learn about my customers. And that's going to start by creating uh, very data-rich profiles, going out and finding every source of data I can about my customers, aggregating it, and creating these profiles sometimes anonymous, more often pseudonymous, sometimes actually first party data, it's not anonymous at all, these profiles of who these customers are. And that lures me into thinking, hey, I know my customers but it completely ignores the fact that customers are telling us all the time that they want anonymity, that there are, they are concerned about privacy, and that when they discover that brands are collecting more information about them, even in the name of serving them better, it turns them off. Um, so, for example, 51% of U.S. online adults are taking active measures to limit the collection of their information by apps and websites. So even though you think that knowing more about them delivers them relevant experiences, half of your customers prioritize the security of their information over the relevant experiences.
1: And I feel like that also kind of goes to another point, Melissa, about, you know, this over-reliance on data collection, maybe also marketers' over-reliance or desire to automate or include a lot of technology within touch points and things. So kind of skewing towards technology versus creativity or building relationships, or even to your point, just talking to customers. Is that a piece of it as well?
2: Definitely. We have seen this um, happening in every industry And it's, um, it's one of the more concerning things because it's just evolved over time. It's not, there was not a point in time where people said, um, okay, I'm going to take my budget. I'm going to move it away from creative uh, into MarTech or into automation. It's just sort of happened uh, because we have seen the possibilities of MarTech and automation. Now, I want to be clear. We love MarTech. (laughs) We believe in the future of automation. However... (laughs) Pivoting or over pivoting towards these things has resulted in the deprioritization of creativity in the marketing space. And that doesn't mean that that marketers don't talk about the importance of creative. Sure, they do. And yes, they still have very robust agency relationships. But when it's easier to measure the effect of automation and uh, campaign management through MarTech than it is to measure the effect of creativity or emotion. It, the the business case for pivoting even further towards the tech is a very easy one to make. The problem is that that has resulted in some pretty embarrassing marketing mistakes. Uh, you know, you, you schedule your tweets in advance, then some sort of a world event happens, and you forget to turn off the tweet that you had already that you had already scheduled, uh, and now it looks just completely horrible in the context of world events. That has happened a lot, but even it goes even further where because people are not thinking as much about the creative, we have some really uh, terrible brand damaging um, marketing and advertising that has resulted. Uh, there are many brands. Heineken, uh, Dove, uh, H and M, etc., who have allowed marketing programs with creative to go out that it's very hard to not see as racist or inappropriate uh, to everybody who wasn't in the room as the campaign was being developed, Um, or the the one that I was really shocked to hear about a couple of years ago um, at you know Forrester being a, a Cambridge based company uh there was a sneaker brand that uh that sent an email to participants of the boston marathon uh, with the subject line congrats you survived the boston marathon now if if you're not steeped in that in that city and are not always thinking about the the terrible bombings that happened several years ago it's like oh haha, right running a marathon is really hard uh, But it's just so easy to gloss over all of the other implications of the creative you've developed if what you're actually thinking about is how many people are going to open this email, is it scheduled in the system, is it connected to all the other parts of my campaign management MarTech stack, and are we measuring it correctly? Uh, So it's just creating this wedge between... The emotions you're creating for the customer, uh, which in many cases are negative and are driving them further away from you, uh, and the importance on the measurability and efficiency of your marketing program.
0: So one of the things that that strikes me, and we've had this conversation here a set of times, is is economies of scale, which is marketing at onset has been the pursuit of economies of scale, which is if I do few things and get many outcomes, I've achieved a great economic. And I think one of the damaging aspects of marketing automation platforms, it allows economies of scale sort of on steroids. And creative, actually moments of empathy, thinking hard about the repercussions of creative is a very bespoke exercise. And economically, it could be perceived as inefficient.
2: Yes, there, there definitely are questions like that. I mean, there, that's a reason, that's one of the reasons that, Marketers often think of what they do as both an art and a science, and and I think it's very hard to get away from that. There are no creative endeavors that scale efficiently when you look at when you look at it through the lens of an economic model. Um, it doesn't doesn't really matter what media you're talking about. Um, That's just there. There's the artistic and the scientific, and marketing has got to balance the two, just like any other pursuit. The problem is that the the economies of scale are so. Um, uh, seductive in marketing, because for so long, we couldn't measure anything. There were no, you had no way to know if you were really achieving those things. And now you can know it. So of course, you're going to go in that direction. Um, Nobody gets any blame from me for doing that. Uh, It's just now we have to come back and and find this balance. And that means really taking a hard look at some of the assumptions that underlie the things that we do every day.
0: Well, I think the challenge would be is if If people are following their current set of sort of operational norms and let's say 15% of customers really were in search of protecting their privacy and only 15% were willing to experiment, meaning go to other brands, that's fine because that could be argued that's in the noise floor. But we're now beyond a tipping point where 54% of customers are willing to experiment. They're willing to go elsewhere for something novel and new. And 51% are willing are, are trying to protect their privacy against the marketer's well-intended zeal. I mean, we're, we're in a different time and place now. The numbers are no longer supporting economies of scale only as the economic.
2: We are in a totally different, uh, in a totally different environment because of that. And I think, I think what's really important for brands to remember is that both sides of that coin um, can apply to them, it's a little hard to articulate. What I mean is um, Anjali Lai, who uh, did a really amazing analysis of this data uh, that we collected for um, direct-to-consumer trends, points out that if 54% of people are willing to try new brands, you're a traditional brand, you immediately think, oh, crap, that means that half of my customers are willing to go somewhere else. Well, that's true, but it also means that half of people who are not your customers could be willing to try something new from you. So so the the whole your whole orientation towards the customer base changes and bifurcates. You are no longer addressing everybody in the world. That is the reality. Uh, but how you address the people who are and could become your customers could be different if you just change the way you think about what the data is telling you.
0: And what the data is saying, just following the ball for a second is that, Five years ago, ten years ago, maybe twenty percent of customers were persistently in flight, and so you could manage that number. But now, when you have fifty percent of customers arguably in flight, and they could be benefiting any number of different people, but nonetheless, that's a heck of a lot of people that are in flight making new decisions. I mean that's that's the orientation of marketing is How do I think of a market that's that essentially volatile?
2: That yes, exactly. The market is incredibly volatile, and it's also one of the the reasons that um, I mean, I think <laughs> I think pundits and gurus and analysts have been saying this forever. Uh, you know. Why do do you spend uh, so much more money on acquisition and completely neglect loyalty, um, which is a a very standard um, sort of way to plan marketing budgets? And I think that's even truer now. Uh, Is there something to be said for uh, increasing a company's focus on loyalty, whether that means marketing or product or anything else, if people are so willing to switch, Are you a company for which it's in your best interest to actually try to focus on getting them to stay? uh, Or do you want to look at the half of the market that's in play? Um, It it is a it's a question that bears real answering as opposed to the knee jerk reaction of we are always in acquisition mode.
1: Well, and let's touch on loyalty for a second, because I feel like when we talk about loyalty, Maybe our brains go to traditional loyalty programs or things that essentially are getting the customer to do the next transaction. But that's when we talk about loyalty, that's not really what we're trying to get at. Is it, Melissa? It's more building that relationship. Maybe you're in line with a social cause with your customers. Can you talk a little bit more about what is that essence of loyalty we're trying to point at?
2: Yeah, I mean loyalty programs are a, are a, a huge part of this of course, but it but they are just a part. Ideally we we're talking about loyalty in its most sort of Oxford English Dictionary mm-hmm. kind of way, creating connections with customers that are far less easily broken than just the commercial one. Now, that's not right for every brand. There are plenty of brands out there that are commodities. And the way to improve loyalty is to create the best product. That's what you got to do. I think that has always been true for certain kinds of products. Um, and I think that will likely always be true. But if you, are, if you are not in that sort of space, then it is how do you serve? Serve your customers, what actually is it that they turn to you for beyond the quality of the product? And and how do you serve those needs that are not just financial? Um, you know, is it the, the cheapest thing or is it the, am I getting the, the uh, quality at the right price? Am I serving? Am I making you feel like a good citizen of the world by being someone who participates with my brand? Am I helping you achieve an actual goal of, of some sort? Um, whether that's to be fashionable or to be more financially secure or um, to graduate from college or whatever it is. There are all sorts of needs that customers have uh, that the brands can help them fulfill. And that builds loyalty because you have helped them in some way. It isn't necessarily about points and miles and stars and rewards.
0: If I break down loyalty into three parts, how good does a product perform? Financial, is the price correct or, or is the price value correct? And then emotion. I think what, what strikes me about the current marketplace is that product performance, it's so easy these days to be out-innovated from left field. It's so hard to have a sustainable product advantage in a marketplace that's running at this pace. And this is across manufacturing, IP. This is not sort of unique to any specific market. This is across the board. And then the financial, you can often, as you've, we've seen in different markets, and I use uh, telecom as the example, which is pricing can be a race to the bottom. Or if you condition your customers for perks and benefits, it is a, just a different kind of race to the bottom. You're just giving away more. But emotion is something that, can be more durable at the right price. I mean, it, in other in words, you should do the other two as well. But it, if you don't do the emotional part, you're really stuck playing at risk for the innovation or a race to the bottom on price.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's exactly right. And the, the race to the bottom on price really does affect every, every industry you can think of, unless you're a luxury brand, uh, which is sort of... Uh, insulated against that that kind of problem because of of who they are from the word go, um, but if you've created an emotional connection, something that this is the kind of thing that makes um, a, makes a customer uh, an advocate or an evangelist in a way that uh, as a business analyst you might go well that's just an anecdote, but as a customer it means it means everything to you, um, an anecdote that you might consider. Uh, when, and this is actually a personal one, this is not from research, I am a customer of a particular bank and have been for decades, even though they have gone through some challenges like all consumer banks have, because my wallet was stolen the day before I was taking an international vacation with my family, and I called the bank freaking out, and they immediately canceled my debit card, reissued something that I could use, made a note on my account that I was um, traveling internationally, had all the fraud protection set up, and it was like nothing ever happened. So I was able to, to fly within like 14 hours and have everything be great. That one experience I have told hundreds of people about, and even though there have been many missteps along the way, I have never switched banks and will not. That's the depth of the emotion. Um, and, and I think brands can create those sorts of experiences without something horrible happening uh, to the customer like their wallet getting stolen. Great.
0: Early in the discussion, you said that it's unwise for marketing leaders and marketers to stay in the same model but just use different words. Um, they have to really rethink some of the basics here.
1: This isn't a game of optimization.
0: Yeah. So let's pretend I'm a CMO. Let's just pretend. And um, I come to you and I say, I kind of, I kind of believe what you're saying. I don't, I don't particularly like it because it's pretty inconvenient. So, so where do I start? What, What do I, where do I go first to make some of the changes that arguably will affect the operating model, the talent that I have in the chair, all these different pieces have sort of fallout associated with them. So where, where do I begin that journey?
2: Yeah. And this, I would say, unfortunately, uh, you're you're not going to like my response because it's about, uh, it, it is sort of a, <laughs> you kind of go back to the Socratic method and you interrogate absolutely everything until you get back to the most fundamental assumptions you are currently holding about how marketing works. I'm talking about things like the fact that somehow marketers have gotten into the mode of treating customers and prospects the same way when it comes to to this customer obsession uh, data collection thing. Customers expect you to know them to some degree. Prospects don't. (laughs) This is like such a basic thing to say. But marketers are not thinking about this anymore. They are just thinking, okay, well, I don't know the prospect really well, so what data can I get on them to make the experience more relevant? Well, that's a value to you, the marketer, not necessarily to the customer. So you've got to rethink things at that level. Or how about about your... Um, the way you think about advertising in general, the a lot of the the philosophies that go along with uh, programmatic in the digital advertising era have bled into into advertising um, uh, across in sort of an omnichannel experience. This idea that um, uh, that instead of um, uh, just putting all of your money into television. Uh, You could go and amass audiences online, and then you target the audience, and that's how you achieve scale. Well, then there was all this fraud that happened in the programmatic marketplace, uh, and so marketers swung again, here's another pendulum, all the way back to the other side, and they said, okay, well, actually, only Facebook and Google get me this scale. I'm only going to advertise across Facebook and Google, and I understand how you get there, but but actually that fundamental assumption is just it's it's just inaccurate you can achieve scale by looking at how you address audiences and contextual advertising across every medium there is. You just have to be willing to put in the effort to figure out how many people you are reaching and whether they're the right ones. It's not convenient. It's not easy. But if you actually want to achieve scale in an efficient way that doesn't turn customers off, that's the way to do it.
0: So one of the things that came out of the DTC was this issue of an authentic brand. And, and place that against our polarized partisan society we live in right now, meaning the brand is authentic, but ultimately is, is more authentic to certain tribes than other tribes. So how much should brands that seek scale start to think of the world in that way, meaning they're going to quantify and understand addressable markets that naturally resonate with who they are and their purpose and the tribe's purpose. And so therefore beginning to organize the market differently Based upon whatever the tribal structures are, because that that appears to be what some of the insurgent brands have done. How available is that for the established brands that seek scale?
2: I think it's available to the established brands, but it is not going to work if this is the if this is the uh, trendy band aid you're putting on a customer hemorrhage problem. Um, if if you are achieve if you if your main goal is to achieve the greatest scale possible then putting your brand values out there is going to be well depending on what the value is what your brand values are it may very well be in conflict with trying to scale to serve every single person in the universe and that is just something you have to address we say this in our current research the entire world is no longer an addressable market. It just isn't. And so if, you, if that is what you are clinging to, I want to sell my widgets to every single person who has enough money to buy my widgets, then you're, you, are, you, are, you cannot participate in the um, embracing of core uh, certain kinds of, of political or societal values. You just can't. Um, I also think it's just sort of silly to think that any brand can sell their widgets to every single person in the world who can afford to buy them. Uh, That just feels very, um, very old school to me anyway. But I think the point here is slapping a television commercial onto your marketing plan that talks about how uh, no really we care about sustainability is so transparent to customers. Uh, If you have not actually embraced sustainability, it will take three seconds on Google for a customer to discover if you are not actually living the values that you have. So I think the answer to your question is is twofold. If you want to embrace your true brand values in this sort of societal way, you've got to let go of the idea that you are going to be all things to all people because by definition you are not. And second, you cannot see societal or brand values as a bandwagon to be jumped on because we will see through you in a minute and it will backfire.
1: So Melissa, I mean, you said it yourself, this is really hard to do. You have to look at all piece parts of how you're operating as a marketing organization, your technology, what you believe to be true about your customers. So can you provide the audience maybe maybe a beacon of hope who has taken this work on and is either starting to do it well or has done it well. Yeah, I think I, think
2: I have uh, two examples um, that, that I can share. And just because uh, this is their, uh, the particular societal values that they go after, it does not mean these are the only ones that work. Uh, and the first one is one that everybody has, has talked about. Um, so I'll, I will just briefly mention Nike with their Colin Kaepernick ad, which was highly divisive. But they knew that. They knew it was going to be. They knew their audience. And they chose a piece of creative that would speak to the people they wanted to engage, which, by definition, means they knew they were not engaging another set of people. The other brand that I would talk about is actually the brand Brand Left. They are a DTC challenger brand, um, subscription-based uh, for home goods and CPG products. Uh, they were on stage at our at our marketing forum, and. Uh, Tina, one of the the co founders, was talking about how the idea that products can be sustainably sourced, good for the environment, and healthy for people without having to cost you know, 50 or 75% more. It's actually a, a really radical thing to think of. But using traditional methods of product development and customer understanding, they figured out how to do it. And they're growing leaps and bounds. They are, they are not producing 25 kinds of toothpaste. They are producing one. The one that they can make that is in uh, alignment with their company values and the things that their customers care about. They are not creating uh, 4,000 kinds of snack food. They are creating a couple that, again, are sustainable and healthy and packaged in an appropriate way. So, again, this is not the only way to go. These are not the only values that matter, It is about finding the values that do matter to your company uh, and your founders and your product set, and then finding the audience who agrees, and then keeping your expectations appropriate, given what you're trying to
0: accomplish. So over the last half hour, we've talked about sort of a growing level of evidence that the market has changed. It's not that it's changing, it's that it has changed, and... People, organizations are resistant to change and they do really well when there's a burning platform, when there's a loud bang and everyone can respond in kind. But I think what you're describing, Melissa, is more corrosive because it's a slow, steady pace of change, finally undermining the models that they are comfortable with and depend on. So how do leaders break out without a burning platform to do something different You know, we're facing a possible economic slowdown. Retail kind of goes this way and that way. It's using one market example. How do leaders embrace this sort of slow and steady pace of change that has sort of arguably gone past the tipping point?
2: Well, a lot of this will come down to company culture, of course. If you are in a newer, um, more uh, agile environment from the word go, it's much easier to say, stop that, we're going to try this. Uh, that is not the case for most marketers and certainly not for most Forrester clients who have um, very long established histories and therefore a more entrenched infrastructure. In those environments, the smartest thing to do is, as it has always been, Chip off something that feels manageable and try something different there, whether that means you need something like an innovation budget or whether that means you can just try a new process within an existing part of your marketing plan kind of doesn't matter. As long as you are trying something new in a way that is measurable uh, so that you can use that to build a business case for future change, that is the right place to start. The thing you want to make sure you do is uh, because the market is changing, you're right, this is much more corrosive. There hasn't been a moment in time where everything has, has exploded and now you need to address it because of that. When you're planning your first experiment, you should actually be planning all of the future experiments for the next, say, year at the same time with a view towards making them bigger if the uh, expectations for the results of your first experiment come true. Because otherwise, you're going to be in this constant cycle of trying something and then pausing to analyze and then pausing to develop the next uh, iteration. So you kind of want to develop this sort of agile product development process in marketing. Uh, Agile marketing. Yes, we talk about it a lot. I think that is the answer.
0: Thank you for your time, Melissa.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.